Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about a free three-act worksheet to help you structure your story. Whether you're a plotter or a pantser, a novelist or short fiction writer, this three-act worksheet will help you navigate your material and even begin each new story with a better plan. Download yours at nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. Stop getting stuck in the middle of your draft. Go grab this free worksheet, nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. What's the number one mindset that separates great writers from the novice? It's a willingness to lean into uncertainty and to not only lean into it, but to pursue, cultivate, and dance with it. I'm Nancy Panuccio, and on today's episode of Writer Unleashed, we'll explore how you can collaborate with your uncertainty to create your most powerful, original work. Stay tuned. Writer Unleashed is for you, a writer who has a story you want to bring onto the page and into the hearts and minds of readers. I'm Nancy Panuccio, writer, editor, and writing coach, and each week we'll explore techniques, mindsets, and inspiration for writing stories readers can't put down. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let's begin. Most of us, when we first sit down to write, the only thing we're certain of is that we want to write a great story, something that's moving, a story that's meaningful to us and to our readers. But facing the blank page, not knowing what will happen next in the story, where it's going, whether it will be any good, whether we'll ever finish it or publish it whether our teachers, our peers, and agents will like it, and so on, well, that can be terrifying. What if we have nothing to say? What if what we have to say is no good? What if we're no good? These thoughts assault us when we're staring down that blank page. So what do we do to protect ourselves? We overthink we map things out, we turn to off-the-rack plots, we desperately seek and cling to certainty. We try to control our characters to fit into some preconceived template. Maybe we chart our story's entire trajectory, or we sketch our character to the point that we know every trait every detail from his past, what brand of cereal he eats for breakfast, what his relationship with his mother was like when he was a child. And we think if we have a firm grip on the story before we write, or even as we write, we're safe. Everything's knowable. We do everything we can to obliterate the discomfort that we have around our own uncertainty. 
And in avoiding uncertainty, we disconnect from our work. We shut ourselves off from our creative source. We take ourselves out of flow, out of the zone, and we veer dangerously towards the cliche, the canned conflict, like the saint versus the sinner, formulaic plots like the endless love that defies all odds, overly familiar characters like the raven-haired femme fatale who's the undoing of a good, honest man. But the creative writing process is not linear. It's chaotic. The good thing about chaos is this. Out of chaos comes symmetry, beauty, and order. Douglas Hofstadter, a cognitive scientist who has extensively researched artistic creation, said this, It turns out that an eerie type of chaos can lurk just beyond a facade of order, and yet deep inside the chaos lurks an even eerier type of order. So the trick is to collaborate with the chaos, to engage with the unknown, to play with and stay open to where it takes you. You want to become comfortable with and actually revel in your uncertainty. Now, back in episode 19, we talked about divergent versus convergent thinking. And I gave you a brief exercise on how to activate both modes of thought. Now, convergent and divergent are modes of thought that we engage in all the time. And we shift back and forth between both modes of thought. But some people are more dominantly divergent in their thinking and others are more convergent. Convergent thinking is linear and systematic. It relies on the familiar, the known. Divergent thinking is web-like. It focuses on the connections between ideas. Divergent thinking is open-ended. It gives us unlimited possibilities. So we have a universe of possibility and imagination at our fingertips. With divergent thinking, there's space, curiosity. You generate new ideas. You think in ways you haven't before. You create an idea or a thought that wasn't there before. And what happens for most of us is that our default convergent mode of thought hijacks our writing right from the get-go. It becomes a reflexive defense against our own discomfort. And when we revert to conversion thinking, we create a paint-by-numbers story, or we micro-edit our every thought, which, by the way, is a form of self-censorship, or we write nothing at all. Convergent thinking, this attachment we have to certainty, silences us, and straitjackets are writing. So let's find a way to move through uncertainty and beyond it. Let's not let our uncertainty paralyze us. So how do we collaborate with our own uncertainty while we're writing? Well, one way is to seek out 
uncertainty, to intensify it, even create it. And one way to do this is to cultivate the most intense form of uncertainty, which is contradiction. Contradiction in literature refers to the state where two opposing things can be simultaneously true. So how do we cultivate contradiction in our work? Number one, start by tracking your own contradictory responses. One of the easiest ways to see contradiction at work is to think about your own response to fiction and nonfiction characters. A character can do really horrible things, but also earn our compassion, even while we're condemning the action itself. These are two opposing feelings occupying the same space. Now, back in episode 21, we talked about Andre Dubus's story, Killings, which was adapted into the, into the movie In the Bedroom. The, so the story is about a grieving father, Matt Fowler, who plots retribution against Richard Strout, the man who murdered his son. Now, under the guise that he's helping Strout escape trial and relocate to another state in order to spare his wife the pain of seeing their son's murderer around town, Fowler drives Strout to a secluded area of the woods, shoots, and kills him. Now, time and time again, when I ask my students who they feel the most sympathy for, they invariably say Strout. Now, How can that be? How is it that we can feel more heartbreak for the killer than the victim's father? How can a murderer also be worthy of our sympathy? Well, Dubus plays against our built-in judgments about the perpetrator. He doesn't just portray the givens. So, for example, when Mr. Fowler orders Strout at gunpoint inside his house to pack a suitcase, we enter a house that's clean, orderly, and uncluttered. Fowler notes there are no dishes in the sink or even the dish rack beside it no grease splashings on the stove, the refrigerator door clean and white. In the living room, he notices the magazines and newspapers in a wicker basket, clean ashtrays, a record player, the records shelved next to it, and then down the hall in his bedroom, the bed is neatly made, his socks are rolled rolled neatly in his drawer, his underwear folded, the bedside table clean, the bureau top dustless. So we encounter not the soulless, dirty, disorganized criminal we might expect, but a young man who's gullible, scared, acquiescent, even polite to his captor. Because Dubus brings us into direct contact with the villain's vulnerabilities and even some of his good qualities, we're thrown into moral ambivalence. When Fowler kills him, we don't feel vindicated at all. We just feel sad for everybody. So we can abhor what a character does, but still hold sympathy for him at the same time or understanding even admiration. Remember Tony Soprano? 
I don't know about you, but I have spent most of the series thoroughly despising this guy. Yet during those final episodes, there was an interesting shift. I couldn't bear the thought of him getting assassinated by his enemies. Why? Because while he had done plenty of reprehensible things, he'd also gained my respect without me really being consciously aware of it. He was deceitful, manipulative, calculating, cold, and violent. He repeatedly betrayed his wife. He suffocated his nephew to death. He shot his cousin to death, all with no apparent remorse. But I was rooting for his good qualities, his street smarts, his perceptiveness, his keen survival skills, his loyalty to his crew, his love for his kids. So while he had done things I thoroughly detested, he'd also provoked my admiration. I didn't want to see him die. And you know what? That unsettled me. It made me feel uncertain. So when you reveal contradictions in your characters, those nuances, you also complicate your reader's reaction. They can't have a neutral response. Simone Whale calls contradiction the lever of transcendence. It lifts the veil of our limiting beliefs. It deepens our awareness. It expands our view. We see a multiplicity of truths, not just one fixed absolute truth. And this is what all great writing does, right? It forces us to question everything we believe or think we believe is true about ourselves, about other people, and about the world. It tests our moral assumptions. It challenges the status quo. It allows us to hold opposing thoughts about a character, a situation, or idea simultaneously. And that's why we can't stop turning the page, because we are implicated. So here's something to pay attention to next time you read a book or watch a great film. Track your response. Look for where contradiction is at play, where two ideas, forces, or feelings occupy the same space and both are right. Then go back to something you're working on and see how you can apply contradiction in your own work. Maybe your main character is too noble. Give that character one fatal flaw. Can a good character also make an immoral choice? A cowardly choice? If you think in terms of contradiction, you can avoid the formulaic plot, the cliched metaphor, the stock character, and you'll enter the realm of imagination and possibility. Number two, begin cultivating an awareness of contradiction in your own life, in the world around you. I want you to practice looking in opposite directions at the same time. Now, right now, we're in the midst of one of the most divisive and unstable times in United States history. And it's so easy to demonize and even dehumanize the other side. And we're right now in incredible uncertainty. So 
the next time you make an assumption about a person or an experience, look to see how the opposite can also be true. Can a homely middle-aged woman possess some hint of sensuality or earthy beauty? Can an angry person also have an element of fear and loss? Can a bright sunny day also be a mournful day? Can a luxurious suburban mansion also be a place of dysfunction, spiritual bankruptcy, and depression? Now, the more we cultivate this divergent way of thinking, the more we'll clear space in our imaginations and in our stories. We'll be better equipped to bring juxtaposition, paradox, relationships of opposition right on the sentence level. We'll surprise ourselves and we'll surprise our readers. And our work will unearth a deeper, more varied truth about the world, about ourselves, and about humanity with all its gorgeous contradictions and frailty. Thanks so much for listening today. If you liked this episode, please share it with other writers. And if you haven't subscribed yet, hop on board. I come to you each week jam-packed with writing techniques and inspiration so you can write stories that matter to you and that matter to your readers. I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Till then, keep writing, and I'll talk to you soon.